Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John. You can follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading John chapter 21 from the New International Version. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very very truly, I tell you, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now, this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he 
asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brent. I'm the youth pastor here at Evergreen Covenant Church, and I'll be sharing this sermon with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for the morning that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. Pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. So one of the interesting things about being a youth pastor is that when I was growing up, I went to youth group, um, but I didn't really like it that much. (laughs) Um, My youth group for me was a space that was not safe and holy. It wasn't a safe environment for me. Uh, I was made fun of in my middle school and bullied, and I've shared that with some of you before. And one of the deepest desires I had as I was bullied in middle school was to be liked and to be loved by my peers. And I so wish that youth group would have been a safe haven for me, but it just wasn't. Besides feeling like youth group was not a loving environment, another thing about youth group was I felt like I wasn't really learning anything of substance. Faith for me uh, at youth group was handed down as cheesy curriculum and simple four-step formulas and really hokey videos. Uh, And when I read the Bible, it just seemed so much deeper than cheesy stories and so much more complex and nuanced than simple formulas. I continued occasionally going to youth group as I was growing up, never being too thrilled about it, until the summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school. And I went to this huge uh, gathering of Covenant High School students called CHIC. Stands for Covenant High Schoolers in Christ. I've shared about this before. And it was at CHIC that I heard Rob Bell give a message. And this message was about Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and how Jesus called them. And when he called them, he called them and told them to drop their nets and come follow me. And he did this in the same, by performing the same miracle that he performs in John 21 of the miraculous catch of fish. And for me, at this moment, I felt a huge call to ministry. So suddenly, during the worship service, after the message, I dropped to my knees and I just started praying to God. Um, And from that moment on, at Chick, at this conference, I became a leader in my youth group. During uh, the small group talks and moments we had together as students, I just began to, uh, to lead the conversations and to share a lot of my thoughts. And so at the end of Chick, uh, they gave us Bibles, and we wrote in the front and back covers, kind of like you would a yearbook. And some of the things 
that were said in the yearbook, uh, in the Bible, <laughs> to me by my peers were things like, I think that God's calling you to be a youth pastor. I'm so impressed by your depth, and I really saw God in you. And these were my peers, so it really meant a lot to me. And so it was at Chick that I really felt a call to God. And um, I thought then that my call was based upon my gifts and my abilities. I thought, uh, well, since my peers are impressed by my wisdom and knowledge and passion of the Bible, then that means that I'm going to be called to be Brent, the youth pastor that is deep and knows the Bible well and is nuanced in thinking. Uh, This is when I was 16. Now let's fast forward to a time when I was a leader at uh, Cascades Camp. I was 21. It was the summer before my senior year. Again, amongst my peers at camp, I had a reputation as someone who was knowledgeable about the Bible and uh, knew a lot of theology, and this was a crucial part of my identity. I was asked to be the speaker at a chapel for high school students, and the talk was supposed to be about five to ten minutes long. Now, I knew that I would be speaking to students who weren't under my care and who had other counselors. And so rather arrogantly, I thought, this is their one chance all summer to get an actually deep message. (laughs) And so I researched way too much, and I designed far too complex of a talk with way too much scripture and theology. I mean, I was quoting Augustine, Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, Bonaventure's Soul's Journey of the Mind into God, and this was supposed to be five minutes. (laughs) When I got up to speak, I went on and on. And soon I realized I had completely lost my audience. Uh, Embarrassed, I began to stumble over my words. My face got red, and as I recall, I just somehow quickly ended it and sat down, and I felt like a failure. Now, two years later, I was a youth ministry intern at a church in Chicago, and the youth group talks I gave were pretty hit or miss. I have to be honest that half the time my experience was similar to my chapel talk. I was just trying to do too much. And I could not really figure out what was wrong with me. I felt called by God, and sometimes I did an all right job, but so often I felt like a mess when I was up front talking. I began to doubt my call, my gifts, and my very identity was in question. Why did God call me if I felt like such a failure? I could not figure this out. Well, to answer that question, we'll get back to that story, but to answer that question, I want to look at what happens to Peter as Jesus meets with him in the midst of his failure. Our scripture starts off today with Simon Peter deciding to go fishing. He sets off to go fishing in the Sea of Galilee at night. He invites the other disciples and they join him and they spend all night trying to catch fish and they catch nothing and Jesus meets with them in the morning. In the morning, Jesus appears near the shore and he reveals himself by telling the disciples to try the other side of the boat. Sure enough, they catch a miraculous amount of fish and then they know that it is Jesus. Once they figure out that it is Jesus, Simon Peter jumps off the boat and starts swimming to shore. They eat breakfast and after breakfast, Jesus pulls Simon Peter aside. Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter's response, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And Jesus proceeds to ask the question two more times. And on the third time, it says in our scripture that Peter is hurt. Why is Jesus asking him three times? And why is Peter hurt? Well, Jesus is referencing Peter's betrayal. This threefold question for Peter is to answer Peter's threefold denial just a few weeks ago. And this hurts Peter. This hurts Peter because he undoubtedly started playing all of the memories through his head of the last few weeks. How on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus offered the disciples communion and took them to the Mount of Olives. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus told his disciples that they would fall away on account of him. And Peter said, even if all the others fall away, I never will. But Jesus responds to Peter and told him on that very night, Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. I think Peter then remembered how proudly he proclaimed, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then Peter remembers failing almost as soon as he had made the promise. As soon as Jesus was seized by the Roman guards and taken away and imprisoned, the disciples scattered, and amongst the confusion, Peter was asked three times, if you know Jesus Christ. And Peter said three times, I do not know the man. And then the rooster crows, and Peter weeps bitterly. So why is Jesus bringing it up here upon the Sea of Galilee? Why is he making Peter relive these painful tears of bitterness? And also, why does our gospel writer John use this story as the climax in his last chapter to finish off the gospel? Is it perhaps so we as the readers focus on Peter's betrayal? Maybe we should realize that just like Peter, we are guilty of betraying Jesus as well. That we in Peter's stead would have done the same thing. Is the focus of the book of John a focus on humanity's sins and our actions? Is Jesus here trying to pound this truth into Peter's head that he was a failure? I don't think so. Jesus does want Peter to realize his faults, but this is not his primary motivation for bringing up Peter's betrayal. I think if you ever want to understand the focus of a story in the Bible and you see two characters, and one of them is not God, and one of them is God, the focus is probably on what God is doing. The focus here is on Jesus' actions, not Peter's. Jesus is loving Peter. He's restoring Peter. Before Jesus' death, Jesus had called Peter the rock on which he will build the church. And the disciples knew that Peter was supposed to be a leader in the church. And here, Jesus seeks Peter out to let him know that he is forgiven and he is still to be a leader of the church. After Peter's denial, Peter no sorry, after Peter's denial, Peter no doubt felt that he was no longer worthy of being a leader in the church. And yet Jesus seeks him out to restore him. After Jesus asked the question a third time, and Peter responds a third time with, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, follow me. And by saying, follow me, this confirms to everyone around Peter that Peter has been restored. Jesus' outward actions of restoring Peter here is a manifestation of Jesus' inward desire to tell Peter that he loves him. 
The message of the gospel, first and foremost, is not about our actions as humans, but rather about Jesus' actions as God. Jesus' deep desire in his heart of hearts is to help us know and come to understand his great love for us. Jesus' love is shown to us in the way he treats his disciples while he has full knowledge of their eventual betrayal during the Last Supper. Think about it. Jesus had his disciples go and make preparations for them to eat the Last Supper so that he could institute communion on the night in which he would be betrayed. The Lord makes plans to show his unconditional love to his disciples in an intimate way while at the same moment he's anticipating their betrayal. It is within this context of Jesus' knowledge of the disciples' soon-to-be abandonment in which he institutes the sacrament of communion. He offers the bread, his body, and the cup of wine, his blood, to all of these disciples who would scatter, even to Judas. And after the first communion, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him. Yet even then, Jesus offers his love and grace to Peter. And then again, if we look at the story, he takes Peter and the others to Gethsemane. And he prays and he asks them to keep watch while he prays. And when he's praying, he's in such deep agony that it says that he's sweating blood. And in this agony, as he's sweating blood, the disciples are sleeping. And then Jesus is imprisoned. The disciples scattered. Peter denies Jesus three times. And the next day, Jesus is crucified. What was Jesus thinking on the cross when he was thinking about these disciples and how fickle they were? Was he perhaps a failure because all the disciples fled? I think that Jesus grieved deeply over the frailty of his disciples and the cruelty of his captors. And we know, because scripture says it, that he experienced tremendous pain and that Jesus lamented on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, I think amidst the bleakness of Golgotha, Jesus was also filled with love and mercy. In the book of Luke, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The point wasn't for Peter and the other disciples to be instantly transformed by Jesus' love. If the point of Jesus' life and death was the complete transformation of the disciples into stout-hearted heroes, then it seems to have failed. No, I think the point was that Jesus loved Peter and would die for Peter even while anticipating Peter's betrayal. John, the gospel writer, weaves Peter's betrayal throughout the Passion narrative to show that the Passion narrative is not about grace imparted to humanity through our actions, but rather, while we were yet faithless, Christ died for us. This is a crucial truth for Peter to realize, which is why I think Jesus is forcing Peter to think about these things in front of the other disciples on the shore of Galilee. By doing this, he is showing to Peter that Peter has not forfeited his role in the church because of his sin, but rather Peter was never meant to be perfect. In fact, when Jesus told Peter that he was a rock and on this rock I will build the church, he probably even then knew that the disciples would betray him. The point of Jesus calling Peter to be a leader of the church was not due to Peter's success 
or his abilities, but rather the crucial point is that from the beginning, Jesus sought out Peter because he loves him. This truth, if we look and search, Jesus had been communicating to Peter from the beginning, although perhaps Peter had missed it. When Peter is first called, he is fishing, and Jesus performs the same miracle that he performs in John 21. Then Peter's reaction was to tell Jesus to depart from him, for he was not worthy of Jesus. Here he misses the point. The point was not Peter's worthiness. The point was that Jesus sought him out because he loved him. Peter was called because he was loved by God. Peter continues to miss the point in other stories we see in the Bible by focusing on his abilities and what he has to offer Jesus. You know, I think the other disciples were all able to recognize that Peter was the passionate guy. He was the guy who would leap first. And I think that that was probably Peter's identity. He probably thought in his heart, I'm Peter. I'm the passionate disciple. And when he was so focused on his abilities, I think that he overpromises and he underdelivers. We see this on the episode when he is in the boat with his disciples and there's a storm and Jesus comes walking on the water to them. Peter says, I'm going to go walk on the water too. So he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water. And why does he do this? I think because he knew himself as a passionate guy and a guy of faith. And so he was trusting in his outward abilities. And then those things fall short and his faith falls short and he starts sinking into the water. And of course, we know of Peter overstating his faithfulness during the Last Supper. I think the Bible points out his failure not because it's the most important part of the story, but because his failures allow him to see the most important thing. That Jesus pursues a relationship with us not because of our abilities or our faith or our excellence or our success, but because of his deep love for us as his children. I think we see a paradigm shift in Peter when he responds to Jesus in our story. Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And in the Greek, the word for love is agape. Agape is the type of unconditional love that God has for his children. So Jesus is saying, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And Peter humbly responds, not with agape, but with phileo. And phileo is a Greek word, which is still a strong type of love, but at least in the book of John, is an inferior type of love. Jesus asks a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And again, Peter responds with, yes, I phileo you. I think in this we see Peter's humbly admitting that he cannot love Jesus like Jesus loves him. And he's admitting that the whole point of their relationship is not Peter's love for him, although that is an aspect, but the most important thing of their part of their relationship is that it is Jesus who loves Peter. And the third time, Jesus says again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But he says, phileo. And I think this hurts Peter, not only because he's reminded of the betrayal, but also because Jesus is pointing out that the one who loves completely unconditionally is God alone. And now that Jesus has said, 
Do you phileo me? Peter can truly repeat Jesus' words back to him. And he says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Phileo. The shift that happens here is Peter begins to see himself not primarily as the disciple of passion or the rock, although that's part of his identity, but first and foremost as one loved and called by Jesus. This story is a personal story. It illustrates that a person's identity more than anything comes first from the fact that they are loved by God. And I believe that John, the writer of this book, knew this. And this is why he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I used to always think it was weird that John said this. It comes up sometimes in the gospel. He says the disciple that Jesus loved. I was like, uh, is he full of himself? What's going on here? But now I think it makes sense. I believe John is making a theological statement. And he is saying that his, his identity is founded more so than even his birth name in the fact that he is one whom God loves. So back to this story of my call. As I continued on to seminary, my call still sometimes seemed hit or miss. I still had doubt. In the summer between my second and third year of seminary, I was a chaplain intern at Good Samaritan Hospital in Puyallup, Washington. As a chaplain intern, you visit patients part of the time, and the other part of the time, you meet with other chaplain interns and a supervisor in a cohort. You write papers, you discuss theology, you debrief your visits. And during this process, one of the things we had to do was write a, a, we had an assignment where we had to write our faith story. As I was writing about my experience of being bullied in middle school, suddenly it hit me. I realized my deepest wound was the feeling that I was unlovable. Peers never admired me, but they made fun of me. And slowly over time, I felt unworthy of love from my peers. Somehow I doubted if people liked me, and I'm like, are they really taking interest in me? And somehow this translated to my relationship with God, and I realized that deep down I did not truly feel that I was worthy of God's love. This was the hardest point in that summer. I felt really broken. I think much like Peter felt after he had abandoned Christ. I remember going over my faith story in my CPE class. Sorry, that's, um, that's the chaplain intern program. And my f- supervisor said, Brent, do you realize that Jesus loves you? He truly loves you? Slowly, I started realizing that God did not call me because I was a deep person or because of my knowledge or because of theology or because I was successful. He used those things in my life, but God called me First and foremost, because he loves me. That at my core, what mattered was I was loved by God. And at the core, the only thing that mattered when I preached or teached was that I was showing people that they are loved by God. By focusing on the outward and what I had to offer God, I had been sabotaging my witness. What God really wanted was for me to know I was a disciple whom he loved. And what he wanted me to show others was that they were people who were loved by God. Soon after this revelation, I went on a plane ride to my friend's wedding, and I sat next to a girl in her 20s. We had that conversation, actually the whole plane ride, this doesn't happen to me very often, and um, through the course of the conversation, she found out that I was a chaplain intern 
and I was wanting to become a pastor someday. And I found out through the course of the conversation that uh, she didn't like Christians or the church. And instead of debating or defending the church, I simply listened to her. Uh, I told her, you know, you must have a good reason. What is it? I listened to her story. I agreed with her that a lot of the Christians she had met seemed pretty bad. And I agreed with her that some of the stories in the Bible did seem backwards and archaic in their treatment of women at first glance. That was her, um, that was one of her issues. And then once I showed her that she mattered and that she was loved, she began to ask me all sorts of questions. Like, why could I believe the Bible? And suddenly, because I made her feel loved and heard, I was able to explain using history, theology, and the Bible to show how God used imperfect people and imperfect systems to communicate his love in the Old Testament. Not necessarily approving of these imperfect systems, but using these fallen systems to do his will. And soon she asked me more and more questions. She asked me, well, what books of the Bible should I read first? And then she asked me what my denomination was, and she said that she uh, was going to, s- to school at um, KU in Kansas, uh, and she was wondering if I could recommend a covenant church, maybe. And so it was just such a cool conversation. And after that, that's when I truly, truly felt called. God used my outward skills of theology and biblical knowledge, but he used them because of the inward disposition of my heart. My focus was on loving her first and helping her to feel loved by God through me. So God loves us first before we even respond to him. Why does this matter? It matters because it affects our identity and it affects how we see others around us. This means love flows down. It comes from God through us and then to others. And this affects how we preach the gospel. I think too often the church has at times started with and focused on how wide and far is the gap between heaven and hell. But this isn't how the Bible starts. The Bible does not start with the realization of how sinful we are and how depraved we are. It starts with a proclamation that God created the world and it was good. It starts with a proclamation that we were created in the image of God and this was very good. It says in Jeremiah that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't get me wrong. The fall is a huge part of the story of God's grand redemptive narrative. But it's not the start and it's not the end. The start and the end of the Bible is about God's all-surpassing love for us. Secondly, this idea of love flowing down doesn't just affect how we preach the gospel, but it also affects how we live out the gospel. In the midst of Jesus' threefold question to Peter in John 21, Jesus works in the result of Peter's call. Every time Peter responds with, yes, Jesus, I love you, Jesus says to take care of my sheep. To take care of Jesus' sheep meant to pastor well. This was a specific call to Peter. Love flows down from God to us and then through us. And possessing a desire to love God means possessing a desire to love what God loves and God loves humanity. For Peter, the call is unique. It's about Jesus specifically wanting him to love others as a pastor and a leader for the church. But the takeaway for us today is that 
if we are to focus on our identity as ones who are loved by God, then our focus should also be how can we love others as Christ loved us. A personal relationship with Christ should cause us to desire to love others. It should give us the desire to help others realize their true identity as children of God who are loved by God. John 21 ends with a call to let every person across the earth know that they are loved. And how do we let people know that we, they are loved? We meet their needs. We undo all the lies that they have been told through the course of their lives that tell them they are not loved. For some reason, at times in the church, we've had a dichotomy between evangelism and social justice, which to me makes no sense because it is from our outward manifestations of our heart, of our inward heart, in which we communicate Christ's love to others. When we do things like feeding the hungry, give dignity to those who do not have it, when we advocate for the rights of refugees, immigrants, and the marginalized, when we do this, we communicate that despite what the world has told people, we are telling them that they are the ones who are loved by Christ.